Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 11 tonight. Hebrews chapter number 11. And uh, while you turn there, let me just encourage you ladies, be sure and get those recipes in. I know you all know how to cook. I've eaten your cooking. And it's worth preserving. Amen. So I want you to be sure and get those recipes in. And um, and, and if we can, and, and I mean, I don't think it's too much to ask, but um, Jane, please no more rum cakes in the in the church cookbook, all right? Um, it just don't look good. So let's try to leave all the rum cakes and, and liquor desserts and stuff out of it. Hebrews chapter number 11. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 13 tonight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 13. I'll tell you, we're going to preach all over this chapter this evening. Uh, but our central thought will come from these verses. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 13. The Bible says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is an heavenly Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Let's pray together. Father, we love You tonight. Thank You for the opportunity to be in Your house. I pray that You would take Your Word and wield it tonight as Your sword, Lord, the sword of the Spirit, that You, Father, might divide asunder soul and spirit, Lord, even more keenly than the bone and the marrow, that You might deal with us and work in our hearts, our minds, our lives, Father, that you might be glorified in what takes place. Now, Lord, we need to hear from you tonight. Uh, That's not just icing on the cake. It's not just a a pleasant surprise that that we would be delighted by. Lord, that's the the essential. That's the reason we're here tonight. Uh, These people didn't come to hear from me. They came to hear from you. And I pray that you'd speak tonight through your word, that you'd show up and work mightily in our midst. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Hebrews chapter number 11, the entire theme of this chapter is the idea and topic of faith. If you were to walk through, some people have called this the hall of faith or the hall of fame of faith. And you'll find that over and over and over again, this theme, this ideal of faith is sounded forth like the sound of a bell that is pealing and ringing over and over and over again. God is drawing our attention to the vital nature of faith in the Christian experience. For instance, if we just walk down through the verses of this chapter, why don't we do that for just a moment? In verses 1 through 3, uh, the Bible says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Here we have faith's premise. What faith is at its very core. It is taking God at His Word and responding in action and obedience to the things that God has spoken. In other words, the invisible things of God in our life are manifest and expressed through our faith. And the proof of this is even when we look around at creation. You know, no man was there at creation. Any man that claims that he knows what happened when the world was created, uh, he's always relying on somebody else's testimony. Let me just say I'm a creationist tonight. I believe that God created this world in six literal days, and on the seventh literal day, He literally rested. 
Uh, and the reason I believe that is because my Bible teaches me that. Uh, in other words, I wasn't there, you weren't there, but through faith we understand that to be true. By the way, uh, any white-coated scientist that claims that something else is the reality, they too are operating in the mode and realm of faith, for they weren't there when it happened either. The only difference is not whether it takes faith, but what you're going to put your faith in. I put my faith in the inspired and errant and mutable uh, perfect Word of God that God has told me the truth about how this world came into be. So even as we examine something as simple as creation around us, we find an expression of faith. So in the first three verses, we see faith's premise. In verses 4 through 6, we see faith's pleasing. It says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. In other words, God was pleased with the gift that Abel gave. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. God was pleased with the lamb that Abel gave and he was pleased with the life that Enoch lived. And it says in verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, faith pleases God. God is pleased to see us walking by faith. He is pleased to see us trusting him. That's no different than any parent would be with a child. You want your children to trust you. You're troubled when they don't trust you. Imagine how God feels when we won't trust Him enough to follow Him, to obey Him. But He is pleased, on the other hand, when we choose to follow Him and obey Him. Verses 7 and 8, we see faith's prompting. It says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. Did you notice that phrase? Moved with fear. Faith prompted him, it moved him with fear, and he prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So in other words, faith prompted Noah to build an ark. It says in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. In other words, the Hebrew writer is saying, Faith will make you do things. If we really believe God, it's going to change the way we live and act. A lot of this, you with me tonight here on a sleepy Sunday night apparently? You with me? A lot of this so-called theoretical faith, this faith that is a faith in dogma but not in action, is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is the effectual dependence upon God. And uh, whatever dogma may be associated with our faith or the faith, it is meant not to be uh, theoretical but to be practical to change the way that we live. And the Hebrews writer says, hey, you, if you believe God's Word and what God says, that's going to move you to uh, respond in a certain way. It's going to move you to action. It's going to move you to do some things. I remember hearing years ago a statement by Leonard Ravenhill. He said some men's faith yeah, is like a gun barrel. Uh, it is straight as an arrow, but just as hollow. Amen? And a lot of times this theoretical faith of having the right statement of faith, having the right dogma, having the right belief system, hey, you ought to believe right. Amen? Evil communication corrupts with good manner. Bad doctrine creates bad living. But I'd say this, just because you've got the right doctrine, just because you believe the right thing, that don't give you a pass to just sit back and not serve God. Instead, that ought to prompt you to serve Him. We see faith's prompting. Verses 9 and 10, we see faith's persistence. It says, by faith, 
He sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. Uh, in other words, he stayed there dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Here's why he did it. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I'd say this faith, if we really trust God and believe Him, it gives us a persistent spirit, a steadfastness. The purpose in those verses is to say when it would have been easy for Abraham to turn around and go back to the country of his birth, go back to the country of his family, go back to the family of his or to the country of his culture. Instead, he persisted, living like a stranger, dwelling in tents. Why did he do that? Because God said, I'm going to put a city here. He said, I want to be where God is. Faith will give you some persistence. Verses 11 and 12, we see faith's power. It says, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. In other words, faith didn't just cause her to change something. Faith changed something in her. Uh, faith has the power not just to reach out and change others, but to change our lives as well. Faith can literally give life where only death lives. Uh, the Bible speaks of those that live in pleasure, says they're dead while they live. Well, listen, when we live in biblical faith, uh, though uh, we may experience persecution, uh, death as far as our, our life or death as far as our uh, prosperity or death as far as our popularity, uh, though we may experience all manner of malignment and malicious treatment, we're still living through that concept of faith. I would say this, faith has power, power to change things. It is not merely something that encourages or shores up a person's state and peace of mind. Faith literally has the ability to change and touch the tangible world around us. It gave life to the dead womb of Sarah. We see faith's power. Then verses 17 through 22, we see faith's perspective. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. You know, whenever he gave uh, Isaac on Mount Moriah, he wasn't doing that because he was saying, well, you know, I love him and he's precious to me, but I'm going to give him to God because I love God more. That's not what was going through Abraham's mind. Look what it says in verse 19. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Here's what Abraham was thinking. He was saying God's promise uh, that I'm going to have children through Isaac, that a nation will be brought into existence through Isaac, and he doesn't have any children yet. Therefore, if I kill him, God's going to have to raise him from the dead in order to keep his promise. In other words, Abraham's perspective was not on the immediate, it was on the eternal. And this theme is continued. Verse 20, it says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning what? Things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worship leaning upon the top of his staff. And you remember in those blessings, he speaked about how God would enlarge Ephraim and Manasseh and would bless them. It hadn't happened yet, but he said it's going to happen because God has promised it. And in verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel out of Egypt, in other words, and he gave commandment concerning his bones. You remember when he died, he said, uh, don't bury my bones instead. Put them, in a, put them in a casket, put them in a coffin and carry them with you because one of these days, God's going to bring you out of Egypt into the land of promise and I want you to take my bones with you. So preacher, what does that have to do with faith's perspective looks forward to the eternal things because of the promises of God? It's not focused on the present and it's not focused on the past. 
It's focused on the perspective, on the future. The perspective of faith is a forward-looking perspective. I see in verse 23, faith's priority. It says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. In other words, they saw that he was the will and plan of God for the nation of Israel. When it says a proper child, it don't just mean handsome like I am. Somebody say amen to that. What it was saying is when they looked upon Him, they recognized in Him uh, the One that would come and would save Israel from her oppressors. And it says they were not afraid of the King's commandment. I see faith's priority here. They cared more about what God said than they cared about what the King said. Uh, They said, I know that the King said that every uh, single Hebrew child under the age of two years old is to be killed and be cast into the Nile. But God has said there's a plan here in this child. There's a purpose in this child. And we're going to reverence the life of this child. And we're going to nurture the life of this child because God commanded us to raise this child up. In other words, faith's priority is on the truth of God's Word and not on man's Word. We see faith's preference in verse 24. It says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, that was no small thing. He literally turned away the crown of Egypt. Egypt was the world power at that time. I mean, it was it was the authority in the world. He turned away literally the most powerful position in the entire world. Why did he do that? Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. I see faith's preference here. Uh, faith prefers the things of God above the things of the world because it understands the recompense of the reward. Hey, listen, the best things that faith brings, we've not yet tasted. The best things that faith brings to the experience of the believer, we've not even yet tasted. Mays Jackson, you say it this way, he say all this in heaven too. I'm saying we've not even entered into the reward of faith yet. But one of these days, we will. And faith, it prefers eternal blessings to temporal pleasures. I see faith's preference here. Verse 27 through 29, I see faith's protection. It says, by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith, he kept the Passover, the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians assaying to do were drowned. In all three of these instances, faith offered them protection from assault on their personal well-being. In other words, the king of Egypt wanted to kill Moses, but Moses said, I'm going to trust God and not man. And because of that, God preserved him. Uh, The angel of death uh, was coming through on that night of Passover in Egypt, and they trusted the revealed truth of God's Word regarding the Passover lamb and the shed blood being spread upon the lintel post, and they were protected from the death angel that night. And then as they passed through the Red Sea, man, you'd have to trust God to walk through that Red Sea. They trusted God, passed through on dry land, and the Egyptian ones were destroyed. I'd say this, faith has a pretty good track record as regards protecting God's people. It doesn't mean that there's never been a Christian martyr. It doesn't mean there's never been Christians assaulted or afflicted. But it does mean this, that God has the means and wherewithal to protect us whenever may occur. In verse 30, we see faith's prevailing. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Faith tore down those walls of Jericho. Uh, they were the most formidable uh, uh, siege, bulwark, uh, repellent and deterrent 
in all of the world at that time. The walls of Jericho were storied and fabled as being nigh impregnable, but faith had the ability to tear down those walls. Hey, listen, we don't even know the things that faith has the ability to do. We see faith prevailing. And finally, in verse 31, we see faith's pardon. It says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. You know, the greatest thing that faith does is it gets us to Jesus. The greatest thing that faith does is it gets us to Jesus. It offers pardon to the soul of mankind. Now, I understand it is not faith that saves a man. It's Christ that saves a man. But we are saved by faith, by grace. We're saved by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All through, this idea of faith is cataloged. But isn't it interesting that there in the midst of all of these sort of examples of faith, we have this short, almost parenthetical description of how faith functioned in the life of the Old Testament saints. It says in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. It's almost as though the Hebrews writer after giving you example after example after example of what faith can do in this world, in the life of the believer, in the battles that we face, he then distills all of that down and gives us a short synopsis of what faith looks like in the life of a believer. What will it look like when you and I walk by faith? We, after all, are called to walk by faith. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. If we're not having to trust God on a daily basis, something is wrong with the way we're living the Christian life. So what does faith look like? Notice five things with me in our text and I'll be done. The first thing that I notice when I read this is the duration of faith in the life of a Christian. Notice verse 13. The Hebrews writer reminds us that all these Old Testament saints, every one of them, these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Now, there's much we could say about that statement, about the role and function of faith in our life and what it meant to the Old Testament saints, but can I just make a real simple observation? Every one of them had to walk by faith from the day they first trusted God till the day that they died. There was never a moment where they were able to say faith is no longer needful, it is no longer meaningful, we have matured past this thing of walking by faith, and now we've finally arrived, we don't need faith anymore. Now I think very often, though we would not admit it in such terms, we have this idea about our Christian life, like those early days when we get born again and we're struggling and we don't know what this means, we don't know what that means, we're struggling with this, we're struggling with that. Oftentimes I think we look at that with a smug naivete and nostalgia saying, oh boy, those were the days when I was really having to trust God. And somehow we treat ourselves now after we've been saved for three or four minutes as though we have graduated past that. Now we have become so comfortable, so established in our Christianity, we've done God on a timetable and a schedule and we've got a handle on everything. You know, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Here's the reality. You ain't never going to reach a place if you're walking with God where you don't have to trust Him. 
If we get to a place where we no longer have to trust Him, we better stop and go back because we went wrong somewhere. Your entire life as a Christian, you're going to have to learn to trust God. There's going to be things that you encounter that there is not a clear pathway through. There's going to be problems that are bigger than you. There's going to be problems that are inside of you that are bigger than what you can handle. There's going to be things and battles and tasks that are set before you that you are incapable of accomplishing and overcoming. And go ahead and get it in your mind. You never mature past this thing of having to have faith. You never graduate out of the schoolhouse of faith. You will always have to trust God in your life. I think very often this should be a natural course of things. After all, there's more things to trust God about as you get old. I mean, everything's breaking down on you. And you would think that would prompt you to a greater dependence and faith upon God. Let me say, it should and it can do that very thing. In those days, as you grow older, as you mature, should not discourage you from trusting God. It should encourage you to trust God day by day. And let me say for us that that may be a, a little younger, uh, us that may be a little uh, further uh, down the path in the other direction in regards to our Christian faith, let us never think that there will come a time or a place where we can say, I've got it all figured out. I know everything that I'm doing. I don't need God's help. I don't need God's guidance. I don't need to trust Him. I've got this thing of being a Christian figured out. That's the very moment we have set ourselves on a course for peril and destruction. I see the duration of faith. And then he goes on to say this about these people. They had seen these promises afar off, and because of that, they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I see the distinction of faith in the life of a Christian. In other words, the Hebrews writer says, these people having seen the promises of God, having heard what God in His Word said, They responded obediently in faith and that prompted in them a change in their lifestyle. He uses three words here. And really you could say four if you include having seen them. They saw them. Then they were persuaded of them. In other words, they confirmed in their heart those things to be true. Uh, We need to make our mind up that the Word of God is true. We need to quit allowing secular humanism and ideology to rob us of our faith in the Word of God. Uh, We need to quit allowing uh, the Bible professors with 800 degrees after their name and more letters than uh, 12 alphabets combined to cause us uh, to doubt the truth of the Word of God, cast dispersions on the inerrancy of the Word of God. Hey, instead, we just need to be persuaded by them. Be persuaded. Just believe it. Go ahead and trust what God's Word said. And then it says this, they embraced them. They didn't just begrudgingly acknowledge that what God said was true. They said, hey, we're going to embrace those things now. We're not going to run from them. We're instead going to run to them in our life. And then the Bible says they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. All this that God had done internally now manifested externally. They confessed to the world that this world was not their home, that this world system was not their system, and that they were a different group of people. In other words, faith in the life of a believer will distinguish you from the people that are around you. It will cause you to view yourself not as holistically a part of this world system, but rather as an alien in this world, as a stranger is what the Bible says there, and as a pilgrim on this earth. You know, those words are interesting, stranger and pilgrim. The word stranger has to do with where you're at, and the word pilgrim has to do with where you're going. The word stranger reflects an, an, an uncommon discomfort relating to the place that you're at. You ever felt like a stranger in a place? 
You say, man, it's obvious I don't belong in this place. Uh, That's how we ought to feel as believers. There ought to be a certain palpable level of tension and awkwardness as we walk through this world. Uh, We ought to feel a little out of place in this world system. It ought to make our skin crawl a little bit. It ought to make us a little uncomfortable. And dare I say, it ought to annoy us some. That's natural. Not only is it natural, it's supernatural. It's biblical. They're strangers. Then it says this, hey, they're pilgrims. A pilgrim is somebody that's going somewhere. A pilgrim is somebody that's headed somewhere. They're going to a place that is precious to them. And that's how we're described here as strangers and pilgrims. People that are not comfortable where we are at, but people that are with anticipation headed to a certain destination. Man, that's how we as believers should be. Not comfortable with this world system because we've got heaven on our heart, heaven on our mind, the Word of God on our lips and on our life. I see the distinction of faith. Then in verse number 14, I see the declaration of faith. It says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Isn't this interesting? They openly admitted that they were not at home in this world. And that then implied that there was another place where they would feel at home. Could it be we struggle to tell others about that place we're going because we are not living in such a way that bespeaks that we're not comfortable right where we're at. There are two sides to the same coin. Uh, We can't proclaim the power of the gospel to change lives when we ain't living a changed life. We can't proclaim the hope of heaven when we seem perfectly happy in this world that we're living in. In other words, this declaration, the way that they live, determined, and I would say it infused with meaning and with power, the words that they said. And they declared plainly to others, this world is not my home, but I'm going towards my home. And hey, I'd love for you to go with me. Our faith should not be something that is cloistered away amongst closed doors of of friendly and like-minded people. We were uh, teaching through the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians on Monday night and there was a quote, and I can't quote it exactly, uh, but it made the statement about the Thessalonian believers uh, that they boldly and openly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what the commentator said. They did not whisper it behind closed doors with friendly company. But rather they went out into the marketplace and declared boldly amongst hostile crowds the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, I, I love what I do. I, I love preaching the Word of God. I love getting... And there, listen, there's a biblical mandate in place and function and, and it, it's preeminent in the local church and, and it's important, don't misunderstand me, but do you know I can get up in this Sunday night crowd and I can preach myself blue in the face? I can leave myself up like a wrung out dish rag laying up here on this stage and unless a lost person walks through the door, there ain't nobody going to get saved. This isn't the place where that happens. That out there is the place where that happens. I see the declaration of their faith. Well, I'll be declaring it to others. Verse 15, I see the determination of their faith in the life of the believer. It says, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. You know, part of the reason we keep being tempted to go back is we're too mindful of that country we left. Isn't it interesting? All the way from the journey across the wilderness of the children of Israel, they constantly talked about Egypt. Was it any wonder they couldn't get out of the wilderness? They couldn't see where they was going because they wouldn't quit turning around like Lot's wife and looking at what was behind them. They talked about the fish. I like fish. They talked about garlic. I can eat garlic on certain things. They talked about onions. I wonder if it's one of them funions they was talking about. 
Then they talked about leaks. And I don't know what that is, but let me just say, every time in life I've heard of a leak, it's not been appealing, all right? They had the... And cucumbers. <laughs> they were constantly talking about the things that were left behind them. No wonder they always wanted to go back. You know what faith does? It gets our mind fixed on what's in front of us, not what's behind us. Faith in the life of the believer produces in them a determination not to go backwards, but to keep going forwards, to keep moving in that direction. You know the problem. You know why God turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt? Because it was better that she be a pillar of salt than be a prostitute of Sodom. And she was headed back. She was getting ready to go back to that place that they had left. And so he struck her dead. And I'd say this faith in your life and in my life should produce in us a determination to go forward. Not to go back to the things of the world. There's no going back to those things. Old things are passed away. There's no going back to those things. We ought to be going forward in our walk with the Lord. Hey, if they had been mindful of that country, and part of the reason we struggle is we're so mindful of this country. We spend all our time thinking about the things of the world and focusing on the things of the world and digesting the things of the world and then wonder why we can't come into church and be spiritual at least once a week. Well, ain't no wonder. We pour that venom, that poison in our mind all week and we're mindful of it. And it derails our ability to do something for God. If instead we just throw all that garbage away and get our mind and our heart fixed on the Word of God and the truth of the Gospel and the hope of heaven, uh, we'd find we wouldn't be going back to that other country. If they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. And you know, if you have a mind to return, the devil will make sure you've got opportunity. But faith instead looks forward. It doesn't seek an opportunity to go back. Instead, it seeks an opportunity to go forward in serving God. I see the determination of faith in the life of the believer. And finally, and I'm done tonight, look at verse 16. It says, but now they desire a better country. Now, that's not saying that those Old Testament saints that died, that now presently today they're looking forward to a better country. But it is speaking uh, sort of, uh, how do I say this? Uh, not hypothetically, but it's speaking generically about a pilgrim and a stranger. If they had been mindful to have returned, they might have had opportunity. But they don't go back. You know why? Because they desire a better country. They're not satisfied where they're at. They want something better than where they've been. They desire a better country. What kind of country? Well, a heavenly one. That is unheavenly. Wherefore, because of that, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. In other words, God must endorse this thing of walking by faith because He's given all these pilgrims of faith a place to head to. He's given them a city where they can reside in. He's given them a place where He said, Hey, y'all come on into my house. You're my kind of people. And He has given them a home to look forward to. I see here the desire of faith in the life of the believer. The desire of faith is not to go backwards, but to find a place where God is magnified. To find a place where Christ is glorified. To find a place where God is welcome. To find a place where God is in control. Where God is in charge. Where God is revered and glorified. That's where the pilgrims go. And the pilgrims go into a holy place where God is treated like He's somebody. In your life and mine, the great desire of faith, the great yearning of faith. This is, by the way, what the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 teaches us, uh, that, uh, that the great yearning even of creation is to be relieved of sin's stain and sin's curse and to be restored into a place of perfect harmony and communion with the Creator that made it. And likewise, you and I, we groan and travail in this flesh. Why? Because though the flesh, like a prison house, holds us down, the new man by faith desires to be what God has created him 
to be. The desire of faith is not to go backwards. It's to go forward and it's to be what God desired and designed for us to be. Let me say, man, I'm, I'm thankful there's a place called heaven. I've got so many folks that I cannot wait to see that I don't understand why I had to walk without them for these years, but I'm looking forward to getting to see them again. Faith in your life produces a hope, an anticipation, an expectancy that Christ said it this way, your faith is the victory that overcomes the world. It transcends what this world can touch and train and manipulate, reaches beyond that plane, beyond that existence to a place that's purely under the jurisdiction of God, a heavenly city, a city of God where God reigns, where God rules. You say, preacher, that's good one of these days we're going to get to heaven. No, don't you see it? You're already in that city. You've been seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're already sitting in that city. I, listen, I know you're sitting here tonight in these church pews. I know I'm standing here tonight, but I'm saying positionally in the person of Jesus Christ. Hey man, we're already home. We're already in that place. We can avail ourselves of that fellowship uh, that we have in Christ Jesus, of those resources of power and of life-transforming ability in our life. That's what faith taps into. Faith reaches outside of this world and into that world. Faith grabs hold of the horns of the altar uh, of, of God's throne room and gains help and, and, and strength in time of need. Faith desires not for that which is temporal, but for that which is heavenly. And I would say this, faith acquires that which is heavenly. It reaches up and grabs hold of that which pours forth from the very throne room of God. We read about that place called heaven. We read about the new Jerusalem. We read about the, the, the place of, of Christ's throne. We read about a river flowing out from His throne. We read about the uh, tree of life who uh, giveth its fruit every single month of the year that lines the streets uh, of that city and that golden street. We read about all those things. Listen, I'm looking forward to it one day. I can't wait to see it one day. But i got news for you. I ain't just waiting until then to grab hold of it. In the person of Christ, I have access. I've been given all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I've been given His riches because He took my poverty. And faith desires to grab hold of those spiritual realities, to wrestle them to this realm and to make them practicable in our life, to make them the very strength and substance of how we live. You remember the first thing we said tonight? The premise of faith. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's the substance of things not seen. The evidence of things hoped. You remember what we said? It grabs hold of that, the spiritual invisible things of God and brings them down into our life and makes them reality. In other words, faith desires those heavenly things, those spiritual truths and realities, and makes them a part of our life. So I'd ask you this question. How is your faith tonight? Is it something that you view to just be the flexing of a spiritual muscle when you're feeling super spiritual? Or is it the very substance of, of your relationship with God? Is it something you viewed that you break out on Sundays when it's time to go to church? Or is it your everyday uh, modus operandi? Is it how you live day by day? I'd say this, if the only time you're ever having faith is when the bottom falls out of things, you're sure enough missing out on a whole lot that the cross of Calvary purchased for you, that the throne of God provides for you, that the priesthood of Christ makes available to you. You see, these things aren't just there for when things fall apart. They are there when they fall apart. But it's to be the heartbeat of our daily relationship with God. Daily seeking Him, uh, praying to Him, trusting in Him, trusting 
four things from Him and seeing Him take those spiritual realities and make them real in our life. I hope if you're not doing that, you'll make your mind up to start living that way beginning tonight. Let's bow together. This musician comes to play. The altar is open. I don't know what God may have done in your heart, spoken to your mind, but I hope whatever it is, I hope you'll respond obediently unto Him this evening. Father, I love You. I thank You for the truth of Your Word, Lord. I thank You for all that You provided for us in Christ Jesus. And I pray that You'd help us now in these next few moments to respond obediently unto You, to find ourselves in total submission unto You. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name.